Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, in our study of Matthew, we come to chapter 19. So let us read together verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. This is God's Word. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any, any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce, and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love and goodness to us. And one of your greatest gifts is the gift of your word. that We have it to give us hope and strength. And we pray that by the Spirit you would open your word to us. That we would understand it truly. And that we would love it. And that we would embrace it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the providence of God, we come to Jesus' teaching on marriage the very same week that the Supreme Court of the United States struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, thus redefining marriage to include same-sex couples for the purposes of federal law. So it is very appropriate that we consider what our Lord has to say about the topic of marriage. Now, I do not want to try to unpack everything in this passage today. What I want to focus on are the basics and the fundamentals of what Jesus shows us and teaches us here in this very important passage. The first thing we need to see is that marriage was not immune to debate and controversy even in Jesus' day and even among God's people. It seems that in some way or other, marriage as God designed it is always the subject of controversy. And people are always tempted to chafe at it. As a result, even in the first century, and even in the covenant community, marriage was an issue that you could use to define someone in a negative way. 
And that is exactly what the Pharisees sought to do with Jesus here. They wanted to marginalize him by branding him as radical and out of touch. Now, the prevailing school of thought among the Jews, and even the conservative Jews at the time, was that divorce was permitted for any cause, that is, for anything that displeased a husband regarding his wife. And that's what the Pharisees are alluding to when they asked Jesus in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That was the prevailing teaching of the day, and they based it on Deuteronomy 24, which is the verse that the Pharisees refer to in verse 7. Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And it is the verse that Jesus uh, interprets and corrects their interpretation of in verse 8. So this was the prevailing view. You can see evidences of this. Uh, The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, in his writings referred nonchalantly at one point, saying the following, At this time I sent away my wife, being displeased with her behavior. Then I took as a wife a woman from Crete. He sees no need for further explanation, because that was the prevailing view at the time within the covenant community. It was not the only view. There was a conservative view that said that divorce was only permitted for sexual immorality, but you can see the prevailing view was the one that the Pharisees are using to set Jesus up. It was enough of a prevailing view to be able to use it to try to entrap Jesus and to brand him as radical and out of touch. And so we can see the influence of this view even upon the disciples in verse 10. If such is the case, they respond to Jesus' teaching, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry That shows you that this view was considered mainstream and reasonable even among conservative Jews. It also shows the power of that which is consistently portrayed by the cultural leaders, teachers, academia, uh, politicians, powerful, other cultural leaders, the power of those kind of people consistently portraying one view as reasonable and mainstream and another view as being radical and out of touch. It even has an effect on how God's people interpret God's word. Over time, that kind of uh, message from cultural leaders has a powerful, powerful effect upon people. Because we all, we're social. We all want to be accepted. We want to be accepted and praised by our peers. We don't want to be regarded as being uh, in some way out of touch, unreasonable, and so forth. And you can see the power. It even has an effect on how God's people interpret His Word. Because that is exactly what was going on in the covenant community in the first century. Now, if we zoom forward 2,000 years... We can see all these same facets and aspects in play today. Things really haven't changed. The biblical view of marriage is still being used to define people in a negative way. It's still being used to brand people as radical and out of touch. 
The difference is only in degree. The difference is only on what particular aspect of biblical marriage is the debate now centering around. In their day it was centering around the appropriate grounds for divorce. In our day it's gotten to the point that it's the centering around who can get married. Is it a man and a woman or can the same sex uh, be married? So today, those who oppose same-sex marriage, and that's just the latest in a long line of different measures that have deteriorated marriage, those who oppose it are effectively branded as not only radical and out of touch, but as haters. That's been going on for a couple of decades now. That's the constant drumbeat coming from the purveyors and the shapers of culture, that those who oppose this no matter how reasoned they may be, no matter how calm, no matter how nice, no matter how loving, no matter how much they may affirm their love and God's love for all people, uh, the, the salvation of Jesus Christ for all people, no matter how much that is affirmed, they have been constantly branded as haters. Any kind of declaration or opposition or saying, no matter how you say it, that uh, same-sex marriage or homosexuality is sin, just like other sins, um, it is regarded as hate speech. Now, in the Supreme Court's decisions, Justice Scalia, who dissented, pointed out how the most of the majority opinion, and it's always five, it's always five to four, how these huge sweeping cultural changes come about uh, in our uh, culture, um, how most of their opinion is constantly saying that by Congress passing the Defense of Marriage Act, um, never mind the fact that at the time that act was passed, no state had passed any law uh, approving same-sex marriage. Not one state had done it. So Congress is saying, look, for the purposes of federal law, this is what a marriage is. It's a man and a woman, and that's the definition. In spite of that fact, they constantly branded everybody who would support it, anybody who would disagree with what they were doing, as again, as being, having an animus of having a purpose of discriminating, of humiliating, of demeaning um, gay couples. Justice Scalia summarized the majority's view of those who disagreed with same-sex marriage as being enemies of the human race, enemies of the human race. Now, I read that sent a chill down my spine because that is so close in wording to how the Christians were branded in the early centuries of the church. They were branded as haters of humanity. The phrase Justice Scalia used was enemies of the human race. And that's why Christians were persecuted. That's why they were put to death. They weren't persecuted because of their religion. Nobody minded their religion. Nobody was against Jesus. It was because these people are committing crimes against humanity. They're haters of humanity. They're creating social problems by being non-inclusive. They're being exclusive. Their God is exclusive. The God of these Christians does not, is not inclusive toward other gods. And these Christians think their religion is better than everybody else's. And their morality is better than everybody else's. 
Now we can see the common accusation against biblical marriage is the one that we see here. Implicit in the mouths of the, of the disciples themselves. In verse 10. If such is the case, if marriage is the way you say, Jesus, that's the way it is between a man and a wife, it's better not to marry. Marriage is not a good thing. Now what, what is stated there without being expressly stated is that the marriage is a straitjacket. A marriage is a ball and chain. Now you've seen that we have such a, a, a kind of a thought that goes that way that it becomes a matter of humor. You know, I, I went to, I actually officiated at one wedding where <laughs> when the, one of the groomsmen, when the, he was supposed to hand the groom the ring to give his bride, he handed him a ball and chain. Ha, 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 ha. We all get it. Why do we get that joke? So that's the common, that's the temptation, that's the rant, that's the belief. Marriage is a straitjacket, it's a ball and chain. It restricts our freedom. It restricts, if you don't let it evolve with the times, it restricts our fulfillment as human beings. It restricts our happiness, our potentiality. Now, if you think about it, this is exactly the lie that Satan has been using since the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, he didn't use it with regard to marriage, but he used it with regard to something as simple as eating from a particular tree. God says, don't eat from this tree, tree of the knowledge of good and Eden. And, and the whole thing, Satan's entire temptation, is basically saying to Eve that. You can't trust God. You can't trust His motives. You can't trust His intentions. You can't trust His love. Because He is limiting you. He is restricting you. He is holding you down. He is keeping you from actualizing yourself. He's keeping you from happiness. And you better start making some decisions for yourself, Eve. That's all I'm telling you. Well, it's the same thing. Now this same lie, run to the end of the road, run to seed, is what we're seeing in our society today. There is a rage against any limitation to everybody's right to define themselves, to remake themselves however they see fit. And what you see is that's really a rage against God himself, against God defining anything, against God naming anybody and saying, this is who you are. This is why I made you. Here's where your happiness and your blessing lies. You can't be, stand, you can't be stood for anything. You see it, this is the same kind of rage that we're starting to see the gay is the same thing you see. In the Old Testament, with Sodom and Gomorrah, when God sends the angels in to get Lot and his family out, the men of the town want the angels, whom they presume to be men, to be sent out to them so they can have relations with them. And they're enraged when Lot asks them to not do this. And Lot did everything he was supposed to do. He did everything in the politically correct way. He didn't cite religion. 
He didn't make any moral judgments. He didn't do any of that stuff. He used a neutral reason. He said, these are guests under, in my house. And in, in the ancient code of, of, of hospitality, you know, you were always supposed to put your guests before yourself. He said, these are guests. He doesn't say anything about God. He doesn't say anything about the people being evil. He even offers his daughters. He even offers his daughters. Take my daughters instead. Hardly Lot's shining moment. Hardly any great stand for biblical righteousness, and yet it was too much for the men of the town. They are enraged that somebody would say and place any limit. They say, you know, this outsider, he moves in here among us, and now he wants to judge us. Look at the rage. He wants to judge us. And so they're pressing in to take by force what they want. They're stopped only because the angels strike them with blindness. So that's what's going on. It's the same old thing in our day. Same old thing. Now the way Jesus addresses all this is very significant. He bypasses the rabbis and the traditions of the elders. He bypasses the law of Moses. He talks about it very quickly just to say, you've completely misunderstood what Moses was doing there. You've stood it on its head. He just says that though as he's passing by, he goes all the way back to the beginning of marriage. And Jesus is showing us something very important here. If you don't go back to the beginning and start there, you're bound to get it wrong. You will even get the rest of the Word of God wrong, as the Pharisees and many others were doing with the Law of Moses in their own day. Marriage as God created it is like a picture that comes along with a set of assembly instructions. Have you ever got a set of assembly instructions that didn't have any picture? Just the directions, no picture? I mean, there it is in plain English. Can't you read? And you find yourself totally messing up what you're trying to put together? Instructions are vital, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And as you read the instructions, you're supposed to be constantly looking over at the picture. If you don't do that, you can think you're following the directions to the letter, like the Pharisees, and yet end up with something that is a complete perversion and a caricature of what you're supposed to be making. As you go along, you must keep looking at the picture. And if the picture contradicts your interpretation of the instructions, then you've got the instructions wrong. And you need to go back and start over. That, in essence, is what Jesus is signaling when he goes back to the very beginning of marriage. And he sets forth that picture of God creating man in his image, male and female, joining them together as one, one flesh. So let's go back to where Jesus takes us, to the beginning of marriage, and let's see what we find. What is the picture we, got, we get? First of all, marriage was created by God. Marriage was created by God. It is not a human institution. I mean, it pertains to humans. 
It's not a human invention. It's not a human convention. It was not created by human society along the evolutionary track to help further the evolution of the species for a time. It's created by God. Second, marriage was created by God when the world was perfect, and it was part of the perfect world that God created. God did not create marriage after the fall as a response to sin. Both of the verses that Jesus quotes are before man's fall into sin. So it's not a response to sin. Marriage may function in a fallen world in helping to hold sin down, but that's not the original purpose for marriage. Marriage was not created or permitted as some kind of an accommodation to human culture. Marriage was part of God's blessings and His gifts. Indeed, it was one of His greatest gifts to mankind. Three, marriage is not something that is evolving. It is something that is being restored. It is not evolving, it is being restored. Christian marriage is intended to be a restoration of God's original intentions. And that's exactly where Jesus is going. When the New Testament writers speak to marriage, they're not accommodating culture. They're cutting across culture in order to redeem it by restoring what God created us for. Fourth, marriage was created to reflect the love and the spiritual union between God and the human race. The model that Paul uses for marriage is all based on the love and the relationship between Christ and the church. And what Paul shows us is that the church is what the human race was created to be, the bride of God. Paul in Ephesians quotes the same verse Jesus does, about God joining a man with a woman and then becoming one flesh. And Paul says that that verse there in Genesis before the fall was not just referring to human marriage, it was also referring to this union between God and humanity, between Christ and the church. Fifth, Marriage gives us the privilege of entering into the life of God by loving like God. Marriage gives us the privilege of entering into the life of God by loving like God. Now I'm going to explain more about that because now we're really getting to the high, glorious aspects of marriage. And this great privilege of entering into the life of God by loving like God, this is why. No other reason. This is why marriage is only between a man and a woman. It is not enough when a society is doing like our society. It's not enough to say, that's wrong. It's not enough to say, that's icky, that's gross, that's bad. You can't do that. 
It's not even enough to say, well, look at all the societal effects. Because all of those just call for one further why question. Why should it be wrong? Why shouldn't we do something different? This is why. Because it goes back to the very essence of who God is. And the fact that he created us to be his image, his sons and daughters. And that's why he made us male and female. And that's why he joined a man and a woman together to be one. To help us live out what it means to be his image and his sons and daughters. To help us to enter into his life. To help us to love like God. Because if you think about it, as wonderful it is as it is to be loved by God, David, Psalm 63 says it's better than life itself. Better than life itself. As wonderful as it is to be loved like God, by God, being loved by God does not make us like God. Loving like God does. And here's the challenge. We can never love God in precisely the same way He loves us. Because He's always given to us first. He loved us first. He gave to us first. Any, any love we have to Him, no matter how great, is always a response to His love and is dependent upon Him having first loved us without us doing anything to deserve it. So the question then becomes... Where can we love like God? How can we do that? And that's one of the places where marriage comes in. Think about how God has loved. How has God loved and how does it show us who He is? Well, there is no bigger difference in the universe. Indeed, there is no bigger difference conceivable than the difference between God as Creator and us as creatures. And yet God freely not only created us, people he didn't need, but he bound himself to us. He freely bound himself to us and gave himself for us. That's the way God loves, and the way God loves shows us who he is. That's why John says God is love. It doesn't just show you what he did, it shows you who he is. And so we see that God binds himself and loves someone who is fundamentally other in the greatest possible way, fundamentally other from himself. And so we see that God's love, contrary to popular notion, does not consist in a cosmic whatever, whomever, however, which is how we conceive of love today. Whatever, whomever, however. And if you think this is going to stop with same-sex marriage, just stay tuned. God's love consists in making us in His image, giving Himself to us once in creation, and then again supremely in Christ, and calling us to be like Him. So how is it then that we can be like him by loving like him because we can't love him in precisely the same way he has loved us? That's where the glory of marriage starts to really shine forth. In marriage, 
we have the privilege of loving like God. We have the privilege of loving someone who is fundamentally other. We have the privilege of loving first, of loving unmeritedly, of ministering life through our love, and of loving someone who is fundamentally other. Paul says in Ephesians, this is a great wonder. It's a great mystery, he says. It's a great mystery. And what he means by that terms is that it is something that is too wonderful for us to take in fully. So in marriage, we have the privilege of loving a mystery and a wonder. Someone who at the most fundamental level looks different from us and moves differently from us who thinks differently from us, who relates differently, values differently, needs differently, and gives differently. And God intends this mystery and this wonder to be a big part of what draws us to the opposite sex. We look at the opposite sex, men look at women, women look at men, and it's like stuff there you can't explain. The difference, as the French say, viva la difference. Well, yes. It's a mystery. It's a wonder. And that draws us. Just as the mystery and the wonder of God should draw us to Him. Six. Marriage is a vital sign for spiritual health. Both among God's people and in human society in general. Marriage is a vital sign for spiritual health among God's people and in human society in general. The reason why this is so is because God embedded at creation this direct link that we've already talked about between spirituality and sexuality. God created us for monogamy in both. He created us to love one God, the only true and the living God. That's why God continually calls idolatry in the Old Testament adultery. It's spiritual adultery. We're created for monogamy with the one true and living God. And we were also created for monogamy when it comes to sexuality with someone who is fundamentally other than us. So contrary to popular myth, the so-called state of nature when it comes to sexuality was not people running through the jungle wildly having sex with one another like animals. It's not the baseline. The baseline is monogamy. One man, one woman, marriage for life. That's the starting point. That's the baseline. Everything else is deviating from that. And when a society loses monogamy in one, when it loses its spiritual monogamy to the one true God, it won't be long before it loses sexual monogamy as God created it to be. This is inevitable. This is why all the culture war flashpoints are sexual. Every one of them. Same-sex marriage, 
abortion, gender interchangeability, women in combat, sex education, morning after pill, free and available, available for girls of all ages as a constitutional right. They're all sexual. Because that is the link. That's where most fundamentally and assuredly our turning away from monogamy to the one true God shows up. That's why in Romans 1, when Paul describes the death spiral of humanity and turning away from God, portrays it as a spiritual, sexual two-step. Paul could name all kinds of cultural manifestations for turning away from God. All kinds of them. But the ones he does name are all sexual. Proceeding from general immorality to homosexuality and lesbianism. And in every case, Paul says God gave humanity over to these things because of prior spiritual infidelity to God. So God created spirituality and sexuality such that neither can stand still. They are either moving toward monogamy or away from it, and they don't stop moving. And thus we see with our own, our own country, America moved from Christianity to deism to humanism to the polymorphic spirituality we have today. And at the very same time, America moved from dedicated marriages to men having mistresses on the side, to couples up openly living together, to the polymorphic sexuality we have today. And whenever a society insists on the right of every individual to invent and pursue whatever spirituality they want, the same society will insist on the right of every individual to invent and pursue whatever sexuality they want. And that society will rage against anyone or anything that stands in the way. Namely, the one true God and marriage as he created it. And this is why only a genuine return to the true and living God through Jesus Christ will reverse the course of our culture. Only a massive revival, which sees millions and millions of Americans turning to Christ, will reverse it. Seven. In a fallen world, the mystery and wonder that are involved with us in our relationship that should draw us to God and that should draw us to the opposite sex can get misplaced. In a fallen world, the mystery and wonder can get misplaced. The mystery and wonder of God can be shifted to the created order so that we end up worshiping it or an aspect of it instead of God. And you can see that with modern uh, uh, naturalistic philosophy, the way they speak of the cosmos uh, in such uh, worshipful terms, the mystery and the wonders of the cosmos. And similarly, boys and girls can grow up finding their own sex more of a mystery and wonder, and therefore more of an attraction than the opposite sex. That's what happens sometimes in a fallen world. And I get this. This is not something I just say to say it. Two of my closest friends in high school and college were gay. I say were because they're dead from AIDS. 
I mean, two of my best friends. And what we need to realize, gays too, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat of being disoriented from the ultimate mystery, wonder, and attraction of life. The one true God. And all of our other disorientations stem from that. And they show up in each one of us in great variety. Some of us have impulses towards sexual disorientation. It may be toward the opposite sex. You know, serial partners, compulsive flirtation or compulsive fantasies. Or it may be directed toward the same sex. It may be directed toward other things. I won't get specific. And some people have other impulses. Some people have a strongest impulse to lie. People, there are people who tell lies for no reason all the time. They have impulses to cheat, to steal, to gorge, to drink too much, to take drugs, to hoard, to take advantage of other people, to manipulate and control other people, to be impatient, to be angry, to lack empathy toward other people, or to to pity themselves. And many of us, if not most, have more than one. But whatever our symptoms, there is a sense in which each one of us can say, I was born that way. Don't you understand? I didn't ask to be this way. I didn't choose to be this way. I was born this way, with this impulse in this particular area. But properly understood, that statement, I was born this way, is an admission of the deepness of our need for God's transforming love and power. It's not an excuse to remain as we are. To say that there is a genetic component is to say nothing more then God has created us body and soul. Everything we are and everything we do is a mix of genes. It's a mix of both, body and soul. But saying that genes and environment are the whole story, that's a different matter. And that is not a conclusion that is demanded by the data, contrary to popular myth. It is a philosophical commitment demanded by the desire to push God out of the cosmos and out of our lives. But here's what happens. When we try to lock God out, no matter how sophisticated and scientific sounding our justifications, we always end up locking ourselves in a panic room with no doorknob on the inside. What we thought would quickly save us slowly kills us. The panic room is not the answer. Coming home is. Coming home to God is the answer. And coming home to God always entails reorientation, first and fundamentally toward God and Christ. But any true reorientation toward God will always, over time, reorient everything else in our lives. What we live for, how we regard and treat others, the things we do when no one is looking, and yes, 
how and where our sexual desire is channeled. Now, in areas where our disorientation runs deep, reorientation can be a real belly crawl. That is true for each one of us in at least one area, and often more. And those areas will be highly personal to us. We will often have the feeling that nobody has this problem, just us. We're the only one who struggles with this the way we do. Well, this is why Jesus called it taking up one's cross. And that is why he insisted on taking up one's cross for all his disciples. There are no privileged people and there are no privileged sins. But it is important for us to remember that the way of the cross is the way of life. Not just life in the by and by, but life in the here and now, life as it was meant to be. And life always entails becoming like the one in whose image we were made. And this is why marriage, as he created it, is such an immense privilege. It is our opportunity to love like God, to be like God, to enter into his life. Now, this is why seeking to marry the same sex or any other departure to any degree from God's design in marriage is more than mistaken. It is tragic because it all misconstrues the love of God It misses out on the privilege of loving like God, and it doesn't tell the truth about who God is and who we are. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.